Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast where we try to fuse a little true crime in with some discussion about healthcare and nursing issues. But before we get started into our stories, I want to introduce our guest host for this week. Jennifer Garcia is a registered nurse and host of the Raw Tea podcast. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Tina. Absolutely. Glad to have you here. Always love to support other nursing podcasters. Your podcast has been around since 2019. And as we get into the good nurse story, we're going to talk about your podcast and talk about you as a nurse and your experiences. And we'll um, find all, all about what your podcast is about and what people can expect. Yes. Can't wait. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So I guess we can get started with our bad nurse story. Today, we're going to be delving into the story of a pharmacist by the name of David Robinson. He definitely descended into a awful world that is really probably a little too typical in some of these true crime stories. These are way too common. There is definitely a twist that happens in this one. Thank goodness, not so common. But man, some of the stuff, just like this, the whole drug thing, you can unfortunately find lists and lists and lists of of people who are in healthcare that get themselves into this situation. Oh, yeah, especially as a pharmacist, I think you're almost in the perfect role for that, unfortunately. So a really interesting one here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on October the 10th of 2018, 49-year-old David Robinson of Baltimore, Maryland, 
stood before the court confessing to his role in a drug conspiracy that distributed illegal quantities of oxycodone and alprazolam. And of course, for people, not everybody that listens to this is a nurse or in healthcare, so not everybody knows. Other people may, you know, I think that most people are going to recognize oxycodone, oxy, that's kind of a common one. Alprazolam, maybe not as Mm -hmm. much, but benzodiazepine, it's sort of in the in the, benzodiazepines are just those uh, types of drugs. It's definitely a controlled mm-hmm. substance for sure. It sort of relaxes you. Um, for some people, it's it's well, it's very sed- it can be sedating depending on how used you are to taking it. It's used to uh, treat anxiety mostly. I think it's what it's prescribed for nowadays. Kind of like Xanax, I believe. Yeah, Xanax, Ativan, mm-hmm. Valium. Valium yep. Those are the, all benzodiazepines of di- you know different mm-hmm. different types, but they're all in that same kind of family. Yeah. Versed is one that we give in the hospital IV that is also in that same family. We've talked about that is used at the bedside a lot of time for sedation, for conscious sedation. So this is what so the, you know oxycodone opioid pain medicine. You know we know what that is. So those are the the, the types of medications that he had been distributing illegally. Um, he was the owner and operator of Frankfurt Family Pharmacy and had definitely betrayed his professional oath by dispensing these drugs, not for legitimate medical needs, but for illicit gains. The U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland, in a stern statement, emphasized the gravity of his transgressions, highlighting the wider implications for the opioid crisis. And we know what a problem that is in our country. It's definitely a problem in the area that I live in, Appalachia, it is so so bad. It is absolutely a crisis for sure. He said pharmacists who divert pharmaceutical drugs for illegal purposes betray the trust placed in them and further the tragic cycle of addiction and the epidemic of opioid overdose deaths. Abuse of pharmaceutical drugs is one of our most significant drug enforcement challenges. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. It's not just pharmacists that have that are in positions like this. Mm-hmm. It's definitely nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, all sorts of people who have access to these medications. But pharmacists are definitely in a special, you know, situation where they have literally direct access to it. So the tip off to law enforcement came from a confidential source revealing that Robinson was knowingly filling fraudulent prescriptions. This was not an isolated incident, but a series of deceptive transactions spanning from January to July in 2016. What was even more audacious was Robinson's tactics. He was instructing the source on how to draft the fraudulent prescriptions, even using non-controlled medications as a cover to avoid police detection. So he would tell people, like, if you're going to write a prescription, don't just put oxycodone, you know, that you're ordering that, but add to it Zofran Mm -hmm. or something, you know, something that's not a controlled substance. So this part I was a little confused by because I first I thought he was the one kind of bypassing these you know drugs but now it looks like maybe he was the not pimp but he was like the guy so I wonder who was underneath him giving out these prescriptions like was it other providers I don't know if it got into that yeah it didn't necessarily get into he had people working under him that he would sell it to and then they would they would sell it so he was sort of the supplier wow to the people who would then be the actual do that and who knows how many hands that would I don't even know how that works I don't want to know (laughs) really but uh, who knows how How that goes down how that 
Right. But roughly 12,330 units of alprazolam and 10,000 milligrams of oxycodone sold illegally over a span of two years. The DEA uncovered even more skeletons in Robinson's closet. Previously, while he worked night shifts in Waldorf, Maryland, Robinson had been filling fraudulent oxycodone prescriptions. Astonishingly, he used names of prominent athletes as the patient's from, that's so bold. Yeah. How do you think that's going to not get you hot? So, yeah. When I read that, I, I was a little confused by that because that would draw more attention. So I wonder what his thought process was or if maybe he did have mm-hmm. some athletes that maybe, I don't know, he was distributing to. I don't know. Maybe he had some and then he would just continue to use those Mm -hmm. names. Like maybe he saw them come through and thought, oh, well, they're already getting, they're known to get these. I don't know. It it just, to me, that's just the craziest thing in the world because it's just going to shine a light on, like that's going to make people, it's going to stand out, right? A celebrity's name. So from September to December 2015 alone, Robinson dispensed a staggering 85,500 milligrams of oxycodone outside the scope of his professional duty. Search warrants executed on Robinson's properties painted a chilling picture. Over $159,000 in cash stashed in his residence, a loaded 9mm pistol, and an AR-15 rifle was found in his car, a treasure trove of cash, gold and silver coins were found in a safe deposit box. So his legal fate seemed sealed with a proposed 51 month prison sentence. However, I told you guys, this has a little bit of a twist on the typical story that we hear from these and it probably wouldn't have made good nurse, bad nurse if it didn't (laughs) have have some element of this to it. Uh, So just weeks after his guilty plea, New evidence emerged that would expose Robinson's descent into even darker criminal territories. On October 27th in 2018, Baltimore City's surveillance cameras captured another drug deal leading to the arrest of a second confidential source, we'll call CS2. This person was in possession of pharmacy bottles that linked back to Robinson. So this is going to come back to bite him because he's, he literally just went through this you know, court proceeding, and he's facing this time in prison. But he's also got to deal with all of these people out there on the streets who have the product that he sold them. And as they trying to sell it, and then they get caught, it's going to come back on him. So that's exactly what happened. The unraveling narrative took a deadly turn, though, following Robinson's 2017 arrest, he grew suspicious of a mole. So This mole we'll call confidential source one or CS1. He believed CS1 had turned on him and worked with police leading to Robinson's arrest for the drug charges. He started discussing his suspicions with CS2. Now, this CS2, remember, is the one that the police caught on on surveillance cameras with this drug deal that leaked back to Robinson. Okay, so now they have this person, this this confidential informant in custody, and they're like, we caught you, you're doing drugs. And, and then th- it links back to this bigger fish, right, Robinson. And as it turns out, a few years before, he had been kind of talking about, or there, maybe the year before, he had been talking about how he was suspicious of this other person. And soon those discussions evolved from mere suspicion to a sinister sinister plot to murder that confidential informant that he was suspicious of. The price, a chilling 10,000 
dollar bounty. Yeah, I don't I don't know how people can put a price on somebody's life, but also the timeline of this. So if Robinson was going through trial, is this when he conspired to kill CS1 or was this a prior conversation? So I think he started having the conversations before because they arrest, you know, they arrest that guy it, it looks like and sometimes mm -hmm. you have to kind of delve into these timelines to kind of figure this stuff out but it looks like he was dealing with that guy in 2017 he was arrested and was had that court proceeding in October of 2018 and it was just a few like weeks later that that confidential informant was arrested so i think probably what happened is that they arrest him, it links back to Robinson, and then the law, law enforcement is going, do you, what do you know about this guy? Probably thinking, is there anything else we can get on him? Because he's, he's getting 51 months already. But is there something, you know, there, I'm sure they know that there's probably more, mm -hmm. you know, that he's, uh, that they could possibly get on him. And maybe they're thinking they could get, he could get more time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But somehow, or that confidential informant is thinking, how can I get out yeah. of this? I know I know a bigger fish and I know something else about him. He's been talking about wanting to kill somebody. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like to me like this uh, CS2 guy just really was trying to divert any possible spotlight on him. And Robinson was the perfect guy to to do that with, given. If he'd already kind of been talking about it, like, hey, I think this guy told and he's getting me in trouble and maybe hinting around or even just straight up talking about wanting to get rid of him and then so now this guy gets arrested who he had talked to about killing this guy and he's thinking in his mind you know if I could figure out a way to get those conversations recorded and maybe even go a step further and get him to follow through with with wanting to do it maybe this could get me out of trouble you know and I'm sure the police are all about like well if we can catch somebody trying to plot a murder, if you're that kind of person that would do that and go through with something like that, then we definitely want you in jail for a longer time than just, the, you know, 51 months. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new, extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. His discussions were definitely not idle talk. There were audio recordings and text messages between him and this confidential informant. 
that confirmed the extent of their conspiracy. By February 2019, Robinson believed that he had paid for a hit with that confidential source showing him staged photos. The confidential informant showed Robinson photos of what was supposed to be the death of this person. And they just staged it, the, you know, the law enforcement, they staged it to, to, to look very real, realistic. And when he showed him, you know, that, that was proof, proof of, you know, of the crime, I'm sure he believed it. However, the tables would soon turn. Law enforcement apprehended him shortly after that transaction took place. Fast forward to March 4th, 2021, U.S. Di- District Judge George L. Russell III handed down his judgment. David Robinson, who's now 51, was sentenced to 171 months in federal prison and three years of supervised release. The charges, conspiracy to distribute oxycodone and alprazolam and a harrowing account of murder for hire. When I think about this, he had already pl- he pled guilty. He was facing 51 months in prison, why on earth he would go forward with paying this guy? And he paid him, he paid him like, if I think like $5,000 up front and another 5000 when it was done. He went through with this. He's, he was literally released on bond. He was out. He was not in prison at the time. He was waiting to go back for his sentencing and actually be, actually have to go to prison. Why in the world? What, what's the purpose just for revenge i don't know i think there's two different kinds of people you know there's the one that are doing this for monetary value but also i think that this was i don't know maybe intertwined with his personality and i do think that like maybe this became something personal and yeah probably out for vengeance but you would think like 51 months like this is something he can he can do and then come out and try to, I mean, I'm sure he'd lose his pharmacy license anyway, but try to somewhat establish a life, but then to go and just want to murder somebody. It just, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It makes me wonder what was going on in his personal life. Like, did he have children? I don't know. You kind of just wonder if he didn't have anything to lose, maybe. You know, we're talking about 51 months in prison. It's, it's you know, just over four years. It's under five years in prison versus just, you know, over 14 to 15 years in prison. So, and, and really, I don't understand. I do that. We do these stories all the time where, where people plot murders. I, I, I will never understand how dumb people can be. I just don't get it. Either they are completely oblivious and don't watch, maybe they don't watch true crime stories. Maybe I've watched too much of it because I would never think anyone's going to get away with this stuff. They are looking for you all the time to do stuff. And if you are sitting there having a conversation with another human being about trying to kill someone that you, you know, for monetary gain for you, or it's the dumbest thing in the world you can do, you're going to get caught. And I just don't understand all, you know, just kind of like facing up to the the four years that you were going to have to do anyway, instead of putting yourself at risk. And really, I don't quite understand really the 14 to 15 years because he thought he killed someone. Yeah, that's a that's I don't want to say hearsay, but it's like you wanted to, but you didn't actually. But that's so scary just to think of the potential that and I mean, if we think about back to what it was in his car, he had an AR-15 loaded. Like, why do you have that in your car? so much cash like it just makes you think that at some point that wasn't this confidant guy he was going after could it be somebody else yeah I'm kind of wondering the same thing and and you know as I as I do these stories I'm always like 
shocked sometimes at the the sentences that I to me I would not want someone to be able to get out of prison who was who literally thought they went through with a murder. I understand that there really wasn't anyone killed, but if someone went through the motions and did everything to accomplish a murder and actually thought they accomplished it and was totally okay with it, how does the sentencing not equate to murder? I don't understand that. Me either. Myself. I don't I don't understand that. What was the other um charge? I know we're gonna get into it, but I wonder if it was like premeditated. Can they even say murder because it didn't happen? No, it was just a murder for hire. For hire so yeah. mm-hmm. they can't count it as a murder because it didn't. Yeah, it didn't actually mm-hmm. take place, but it just seems like there should be a special law for for people like that i mean we you know we did one story about a nurse who literally asked a co-worker to kill her husband and the husband ended up and, and and he was fine and the nurse that she's asking to do this or maybe she was telling her that she had hired it's been a while since i did that story but i think she was like hiring somebody who's like in a biking club or something like that like a biker mm-hmm. She kind of was going through it, through with it, you know, and her husband literally advocated for her to be, you know, to, to not, to kind of be off on for mental health issues, you know, and to be able to get help for her mental health problems, which I don't know, I was conflicted about that one because I'm like, gosh, she really was trying to have you murdered. I think I remember when he did the story and I think she was trying to get the person at work on board and they were kind of like... You're like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> so I I think yeah. that's what happened. But I don't know. It just makes you wonder if there is, obviously, I think there is, you know, some mental illness behind just this unclear thinking. And it almost just makes you want to be in his shoes for a second and see what really goes on in his mind. But it's so sad mm-hmm. because this is such a representation of things that maybe not to this extent, but that just happen all the time and it makes you think like this is a small pharmacy somewhere like what happens in other pharmacists I mean and if you think about it too um as a nurse you have omni cells that you know you have to like count everything you have audits that come up but you know pharmacists sometimes especially in standalone places are kind of responsible for the product that comes in and dispensing it so it really is a very interesting take to see like the opposite perspective almost Yeah. And it's, you know, this is one of those stories that definitely blurs the line, you know, between professional duty and criminal enticement. And it's, it's something that can go, as we said earlier, along with just the role of of the responsibility, you know, that you have, the really the privilege that you have of handling, you know, these substances that are so powerful, and can and definitely have wreaked havoc on our nation on our communities it's destroyed lives, you know, these, these, these drugs, you know, it's completely an epidemic, there's no doubt about that. And I feel like it's whenever law enforcement, everything that they're doing, it's like a a huge mountain of sand, and they like take one grain of sand out of it. There's just, it feels impossible to really fight this problem, this uh, opioid crisis that we have. Yeah, I agree. Um, Even like in hospitals, you talk to patients and they're so apprehensive sometimes to even take pain medication at all, even if they're in 10 out of 10 pain because they have this instilled fear of becoming addicted Mm -hmm. and 
as somebody that doesn't work in healthcare, even me as a nurse, you go into it with a little bit of a bias for what you don't know and just what you hear about narcotics and, you know, pill pushers and all of these like different terms you hear. So um, it's definitely it's cool to see how different people interpret what's going on and internalize this fear almost. I think we definitely need more um, education the bow- the the pendulum has swung pretty pretty far the other direction as far as doctors prescribing pain medications to to patients because now we're kind of in a position where if somebody really is in pain i mean they're truly suffering they don't really have access to adequate pain medication because of this problem they don't want to get in trouble our government it, they're trying so hard to to combat this that I've done stories also about, you know, the the DEA bursting into clinics where they're subscribing pain medication to people, but they're legitimate. I mean, they they have people who are coming in with true chronic pain issues. They are established problems that have been prescribed the appropriate amounts of the medications, not exorbitant amounts, ridiculous amounts that some some of these clinics do where they're, you know, they're we've done those stories too, where they're trying to, you know, hide what they're doing and they do some things under the table and that definitely exists. But then you have legitimate doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs who are trying to just be there and provide for, for people who are in chronic pain. And those are getting less and less because it's just too risky for them. And you see doctors, even in hospitals that are reluctant to prescribe pain medicine for people who are obviously in pain. There are just some conditions that you know, a an exorbitant amount of pain goes along with it. Think of kidney stones, you know, think of uh, some of the, I mean, trauma, broken bones, and some of the things that can, people can suffer. And that pain can lead to other problems. It can cause blood pressure issues and all kinds of, you know, inability to sleep. It can cause you to be immobile because you don't want to move because you hurt so bad. You don't want to get up and that can cause that immobility. The immobility can cause all kinds of issues as we know. And so I don't think that the the lack of treatment is the answer. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems like that's almost where we've come. Yeah, that's a really good point. I work in uh, orthopedics and trauma. So I, yeah. So, I mean, pain medication is huge. I mean, you have Q2 every two hours um, alternating from IV Dilaudid to PO Dilaudid or Oxycodone too. And you see this, like as a nurse, you have to advocate for your patient. And if somebody is in 10 out of 10 and they're getting five milligrams every four hours and they're unable to then work with physical therapy, progress in their care, you do have to send those messages like, hey, like, is there something else we can do for this patient to better control their pain management? And I do think providers are becoming more aware and they there was a whole thing too in the past where patients would leave, especially from spinal surgeries and back chronic pain, they would leave the hospital or treatment with some sort of dependency after those seven days are off. So I that is an issue as well. But I, like you said, I think we're trying to move so far away from that, that like you said, now we're being counterintuitive and not, but as a nurse, you know, you've talked about this too, like we're not in charge of the pain scale the patient is, whether they're on their phone, if they say 10 out of 10, it's not our job to decipher if that's true. But I think especially having the pad that you prescribe with, being the doctor and having that responsibility, it is a little bit of a moral compass there that you have to try to combat. Um, so yeah, it's it's really tough. 
it, it definitely is hard being the person in the middle too, because we don't have the uh, ability, we don't have the authority to give our patients medicine that's not prescribed. We have to get that has to come from the provider. So oftentimes we're in this very difficult position of being the person that the the patient asks for pain medicine from, but not having the ability to give it to them because it's not ordered, you know, there's, and then, so then we're going back to the provider going, this person is legitimately in pain. They've been laying there for hours. I've given them Tylenol. I've given them, you know, whatever. And it isn't helping. Can they have something more? And the the providers are just like, "Uh, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. And you're just like, yeah. Oh my gosh, you got to go back to the person and just say, I'm so sorry, I, I asked and, and they said no. And you're just, you feel terrible. Mm-hmm. You don't want to see them in pain, but you have no control over it. Yeah. That's a difficult position to be in as a nurse. It is. Well, I guess that kind of wraps up the bad pharmacist story. We don't do a whole lot of those. It was an interesting one. I wanted, I, I like doing these every now and then just to kind of tackle that whole opioid problem epidemic that we have i i like to to do these stories sometimes just to kind of bring that back around to the conversation and and talk about the issues that we deal with in the hospital surrounding these problems and i like talking about both sides of these problems and these issues and kind of just delving into it and reminding people of all of the things that go along with them yeah i also think it's a it's a good reminder to um while while you're at work you just I don't know if you see something, say something like you see so many stories about also nurses and just like you just don't really think of that when you go in your everyday, you know, life at work. But seeing things like this definitely reminds you that there are people out there that get into our profession for not good reason. So it's it's good to keep a vigilant eye sometimes and listen to any gut instincts that you might pick up along the way. One more thing before we do transition over that I want to say that I intended that I also like to remind people of is that when if you work in a pharmacy, a a pain clinic, any kind of a an establishment where these opioids, uh, these controlled substances are being prescribed on a regular basis at in high amounts, you really do need to be diligent, you need to be you need to be aware of what the laws are and what's going on, because you can be culpable in these in in the position that you're in, you're answering the phone, you are scheduling appointments, you're, you could be seen as complicit, even if you don't know what's going on. And you could, and a lot of times people in those positions of like the receptionist or the office manager, those people they get arrested, they get pulled in to this, they get they get their lives dragged through the mud. And a lot of times they end up, uh, you know, working out some sort of a plea deal and then testifying against their employer. But just stop and think about that. If you work at a place where these this sort of thing is happening, please don't think that you're going to be immune to to any, you know, any sort of legal repercussion just because you don't own the place or you're not the doctor, you're not the one actually prescribing, you could definitely be seen and and you could be charged. You could be seen as somebody who's complicit in it. I just like to remind people of that too, because I've done way too many. It scared me to death when I started seeing these stories. I was like, oh my gosh, this person literally, all they, they were just answering the phone and you could tell they didn't know what was going on. And yet there they were having to be involved in a plea agreement, which means they were charged and they had to say, I'm guilty of this, you know, because they just because they worked there. Yeah, that's so scary. (laughs) 
So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm gonna ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. So I guess we can get into our good nurse story. So Jennifer, first of all, just to kind of remind everyone, Jennifer Garcia, you have a podcast called The Raw Tea Podcast. So I definitely want to talk about what your podcast is, what kinds of things you, who are you as Jennifer, what kind of nurse are you? How'd you get into nursing? How long have you been nursing? Just tell us all about you. So my podcast, um, I started it a few years ago, and it's kind of gone through some changes as um, have I, but it was always centered around just mental health, dating. I'm fascinated with like interpersonal relationships um, and all that. And it has evolved more into the nursing space, again, as I have evolved into that space. But I do, as a main focus, love to talk about like just mental health and just subjects that you just, not taboo, but you just don't feel super comfortable talking about. So I love to do like a lot of things on men's mental health, just uncomfortable feelings that we have, but we don't feel necessarily comfortable addressing all the time. So kind of just destigmatizing these like difficult conversations and also keeping it light and focusing on my experience as a nurse, moving to a new city and just kind of talking about my life and listening to um, other people. I love having other people on and listening to their story. So that's a little bit about the podcast. And then I got into nursing. Um, I had a little bit of firsthand experience in a hospital setting when I was younger. Um, So I remember very early on this one nurse I had um, in Shriners Hospital, which was such a 
cool experience. And she just really like made my hospital stay just almost not even feel like a hospital stay. And just like, I mean, I have like vivid memories of like it being night shift and the nurses were like talking outside the nursing stations and they would like get me curly fries from a restaurant they were ordering from and like just really like above and beyond like care and a lot of like other circumstances around that is a little blurred to me but like one thing that like really stands out is just like the interactions I had with some of these nurses so stemming from that you know I was like okay like being a nurse would be cool I was in between teaching social work I've always loved and been interested in like the foster care system like we talked about on uh, my podcast but yeah I landed with nursing just because I was like okay like it's also just I have a lot of opportunity here to grow and I think it's a little like people don't like to say that as part of the answer but it's true like we have a lot of flexibility in nursing and a lot of chance for growth you can go back to school so yeah so I'm I'm doing nearing up on my first year coming up in August and like I said right now I work um, as a floor nurse in orthopedics and trauma and that's been you know a roller coaster you have good days you have not so good days um but yeah so what made you want to start your podcast you said you started it back in 2019 so you started it before the the big podcast wave of 2020 when everybody and their mother was starting a podcast because of COVID. So what made you want to start a podcast? So I started, like, I love listening to podcasts. I'm also a true crime person. So like crime junkie, like just like a whole bunch of podcasts and also on the opposite hand, like self-help like dating so like shrink chicks I don't know if you ever listened to them but I think you would love them they're like these like really cool girls that are therapists and they just every week talk about like anxiety or just something and like break it down and it's really cool it's like free therapy so I just really loved listening to those kind of podcasts and then it kind of inspired me to like why don't I start one and so I started it with a friend and we just had really cool conversations And then I kind of just took a break for a little bit. I started nursing school. And as you guys know, like those two and a half years, just you have almost no time for anything else. And then I picked it up again when, of course, podcasting was becoming all the rage. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I have something here. Like, let me gear it. And now I'm trying to steer it in a direction of maybe being supportive to the nursing community and, again, just destigmatize I just don't want anybody to ever like feel alone or not seen or heard in something and I know in my personal life too I've had feelings that I just haven't been open with sharing with people like around me and then when you just talk to somebody odds are they've experienced a similar feeling or know somebody that has and so I don't know I just want it to be a safe space and a fun space for everybody and also it just helps me and my mental health having a hobby I think again it's so important as like nurses or any career you're in to just have something outside of that you never want your career to necessarily define you and you want like an outlet so it's like a three-in-one for me that's the kind of podcast that I like to listen to you know just well I mean I, I have my kind of like my guilty pleasure true crime podcast but I also, as you said, like the podcasts that where you kind of can grow and learn things from and feel uh, not alone in some of the things that you go through. Um, we were just like, oh, yeah, I go through that, too. Or especially if somebody has an area of expertise where they can share, you know, their knowledge about something. And you're just like, oh, wow, that's some insight I never would have even thought of. So podcasts are amazing. I think they're just 
I love, you know, when I found a found podcast, probably like five or six years, like six, I guess six years ago, I've just, I feel like it's changed my life. Just like having access to all this information out there and all these different people and connections. It's great. Yeah. And you can like listen while you're doing other things throughout your day. So it's just going on walks. Like there's just a lot of uses for them, I think, you know? Yeah, it makes like some of the more tedious things uh, that you have to do in life um, a little more enjoyable because you just sort of kind of get in a flow and kind of got those that stuff going on in your head. And before you know it, some washing dishes or some task that that you kind of wouldn't necessarily want to do, you just kind of breeze right through it and don't even, you know, don't even realize it. So it's kind of nice. If you could kind of give us an idea of like a typical episode, what can people expect when they listen to your podcast? So I love having guests on. So I'll have all different types of guests. And I just love hearing their story. I also, I think if you tune in, I also love keeping it lighthearted. So I love like like dating advice. And I feel like, I don't want to call myself like an expert dater, but I definitely had my phase in life where I was like, dating and like on the dating app. So I have that perspective. And now I've been in, you know, a very like serious relationship. So it's just cool to see how you just like shift. And I love talking to people just in different walks of life than I am and getting their perspective. And yeah, so just a lot of different perspective, a lot of things, nursing, um, mental health, other people's experiences. And I always have like listener questions that I go through and just kind of give like my take on like advice that people would want. So it honestly changes. I just think it it goes on how I'm feeling that day. And selfishly, like people that I'm interested in, I love having people on that I just want to know more about. As a new grad, for when did you graduate? So I graduated um, last May, so May 2022. Okay, so so you consider yourself a new grad? You've been a a, a nurse for about a mm-hmm. year now. So you probably passed the NCLEX like maybe around June or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly June. Yeah, I did uh, like two months to study and then I took it and I passed it on the first try, thankfully. That was so stress-inducing. The Nobody talks about the NCLEX period when you graduate school, but you still feel like you're like, okay, but I'm not a nurse yet. I need to pass this exam. Yeah, so I graduated and then... I applied to an ICU um, in my hometown and I was ready to work night shift in the ICU. But then I just didn't feel really fulfilled and I just wanted something new. So I decided to just look at different hospitals in other states and I moved. Um, I like declined that job offer and moved to another state and started working in the first position, honestly, that they called me back for, which was orthopedics and trauma. I never saw myself working in that. I was always very set on ICU as a new grad. But yeah, it's been a very eye-opening experience. And I'm, I mean, I'm learning so much. And something that you've said before, it's like the first six months of nursing were so hard. And now that I'm coming up on the year, I am starting to feel like more confident. I'm starting to be able to problem solve more. So it's really cool to see that. But I just know that I, I guess I'm not a new grad anymore after your one year. But to me, I feel like I am just because I know that there's so much more I need to learn. Um, And I know that I could be so much more comfortable. And I know that only comes with time. So I'm trying to be patient and give myself grace. But there's definitely days that I feel like I just started for sure. (laughs) I remember being two or three years in and still thinking I was a new grad. I, I just, I didn't want to give up that, that, you know, the thought that, oh, I'm still learning. And I, you know, I, I just, I didn't want to, I'm like, 
I didn't want to face that I wasn't a new grad. So I would, I would, I would consider myself a new grad. And somebody would be like, "You're not a new grad." I'm like, "Yes, I am. I am a new grad." What are you talking about? I just graduated five years ago, you know. But, <laughs> but at some point, you know, you do, you t- you do kind of develop the confidence um, that you need to be able to kind of stand on your own and feel like you can actually help other people. And how long? So how long of an orientation did you get? from like the time that you started until you were like taking care of people by yourself? So I, at my hospital, they have a new a new nurse residency program specifically for um, new grads that had no prior experience. So there was a component for maybe a week or so where you were just doing in-classroom learning. So learning like the charting system, just some skills. And then actually on the floor with my preceptor, I think I got eight weeks. Yeah. yeah, that's about like the average. I know if you work in the ICU, you get a longer preceptorship. Um, mm-hmm. And I know on my unit, if you didn't feel comfortable, there was an option to extend, I think, like a few more weeks going on how they felt you were progressing. Yeah. Um, and the way to me, the way I look at it is, you know, you graduate in May, you don't actually pass your NCLEX until a month or so later. Then you start working, you've got as you said, several weeks of class, like time where they're just like human resources kind of stuff and learning to chart and all that. And then, so then you have your actual time with your, your preceptor, which is hopefully a couple of months, you know, or however long you need. So then by the time you get off of orientation, you're still, it's like, that's to me when the clock starts, it's like, you just now taking your own you know, set of patients, you, you, you've been handed now you're depending on what kind of floor you work on. I worked on a, a, a PCU. So it was a three to one ratio. So like I was taking my three patients and there were mine, you know, so to me, that's kind of when that clock sort of started for me of being a nurse, because up until that point, you've got everybody dictating your schedule, what you're doing, they're, te- they're over your shoulder. And that can be that can cause a lot of anxiety in and of itself. It can hinder really, in many ways, it can kind of hinder the, the learning process, although it's necessary, absolutely. But it can just cause so much anxiety that in just, just the interruptions um, from someone going, wait, don't do it that way. Wait, why did, you know, and asking questions and just like, oh my gosh, it's so stressful. So to me, it's like when you finally are that day where you ha- you're handed your patients and you go get report and you decide what you're, what are you going to do? Nobody's telling you, okay, go get, you know, like as a preceptor, you know, your preceptor is going, all right, what are you going to do first? And they're kind of trying to like lead you to do things. You don't have anyone doing that now. So to me, from that moment, I would say it was about a year from that moment that I felt comfortable. I started realizing like, I, okay, I don't feel anxiety every time I have to go to work. I'm not stressed out. I don't know. I just, I started feeling more confident. I I didn't feel behind in my tasks all day long. I started looking at, you know, the, the job as more as, you know, the patient as a whole and what is going on with the patient as far as their history. What have they, how were they when I got here at the beginning versus the changes that have happened? Those things sometimes don't come to you as a new grad. You're just, you're worried about trying to like get your meds passed on time and, and all of those things. That's, that's what worries me sometimes about throwing new grads out there because who's taking care of these patients? They're, 
being taken care of by somebody who's not, who doesn't have that mindset of, you know, a nurse who's even, you know, been doing it for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of scary, really. No, it is really scary. And I think that's a really good point. First of all, I love, I would love to start from when my preceptorship ended, because that would mean I, my year's not till October. So that gives me a few more months. But I think you're so right. I don't think when you're with your preceptor, you're developing the critical thinking skills on your own because you're so worried about like not messing up the IV tubing when you prime, like just very trivial things because you do have somebody's like approval you're trying to seek, you know, like they do report to your manager, you're figuring out, like there's just so much going on. So I would say when I started on my own, I was very nervous. I was more excited, but I, you have full control of your time management. You're not really going based on somebody's schedule. So that was a pro, but I, yeah, I mean, even now, like there's definitely times that I feel like I'm very task oriented and I'm a very people person. A big part of like nursing to me is like having interactions with my patients. So there's been a few shifts consecutively where I feel like I don't have like the time to spend like I would. And then it makes me feel like maybe I'm not doing the best job and maybe reconsidering things. I think every new grad at some point has been like, what did I do? Is Was this the right choice? Just because you get so overwhelmed. But I, I think you're so right. I think it's so hard as a new grad to develop the wholeness. I mean, on day shift, I don't really have a chance to sit down and like skim through all the notes and try to get a big picture. You kind of get what you get in report. You do what you can before you have to go into the room. But honestly, what I've started doing is using my patient as a resource if they're cognitively there. Like while I go in the mornings, you after report, I always go in, make sure they're okay. And if they're awake, I'll just be like, hey, like, can I check this out? Like, tell me about like, I know you got here yesterday. Like what brought you in? Even if I got it in report, you just get so much more from that patient that you're like, oh, wow. Like I didn't even know that, you know? So I think I'm starting to shift more to, well, hold on. I don't want to give this medication just because it's scheduled. And when you first start, you have four other patients, you have timed medications, you're like running in there like a crazy person, like, hey, I have this for you, like, okay, gotta go. But that is unsafe. And I felt that way at times too, where it's like, like, I really wish I could take the time. And like, if I wasn't 100% sure what this was, like Google it, like do something. But sometimes you just feel very pressured to like keep it coming. And I struggled with that a lot. And I can say like, now I feel like I'm making more of an effort to like practice safely and understand. But as a new grad, I know you're just all over the place. You have 110 things going on at once. And I can very easily see how like right off orientation, like you make like mistakes and they don't have to be big ones, but even like priming. Okay. I have to tell you about this one new grad mistake I made that I was just like not okay. But um, so, you know, when you have an antibiotic and you do it as a secondary line, And so you have your primary tubing. So I was hand, I think it was one that ran over 30 minutes, like cefazolin or something. And I went back in there like in an hour and like the bag was still full. And I'm like, okay, I like another hour. Well, it turns out I hadn't like unclamped it. So it was just, just the primary tubing going in. So now they're like three hours late on their antibiotic. And I'm like, okay, now I'm really not on target with like the rest of my day. Then you have to message the provider. It's like a whole thing, but it now... The first thing, no matter if it's magnesium or four hours, I will sit there until the first little drip goes. And then I'm like, okay, we're good to go. Because sometimes you don't like spike it enough. Like, I don't know. So little things like that you learn along the way that are very stressful. But over time, you just know not to make those mistakes, you know? 
Yeah, exactly. And that's unfortunately how we have to learn is through experience and just doing things. And as I said, you know, and we were talking on your podcast, you, these are living, breathing human beings that we're taking care of. So it is so much responsibility. It's so scary to think that we are basically practicing on these on people, you know, and, and I could be a, a, a patient, a hospital, my family, one of my family members, you could be one of your family members or friends or anyone could be a, a potentially a patient in the hospital. And we could have someone just right off orientation coming in there that's totally responsible for us for 12 hours, you know, that's the that's the person oftentimes that well, really, if you think about it, most of the time, doctors are going to doctors or nurse practitioners or who the, the, those providers are only going to be in there maybe 15, 20 minutes and, and a whole 12 hour shift a whole day. And y- you are responsible, you are literally the eyes and ears for those providers, they have no idea what's going on. As a new nurse, <laughs> when you're just so overwhelmed, it is so easy to miss things. I just, I think about it all the time about, you know, when I was new and how I didn't, you don't know what you don't know. And I just, I didn't even know to look for certain things. I thought I knew all the stuff. And then as I, you know, started studying for my CCRN, my PCCN, and then my CCRN, and start learning all these things, I'm just like, my goodness, the stuff I don't know, this is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened to all those people I've been taken <laughs> care of for the past year or two, you know, it's a scary world we live in. And it's why. I am always saying that we should be supporting each other. We should not be afraid to ask questions. We should ask as many questions as we feel like we need to until we're 100% comfortable. And we should never treat other people badly for asking questions. And I see that way too often in people. I will say like any new grads listening, like I, your charge nurse should be, and I, I hope that this is the case, but like your source and other experienced nurses. I work with nurses that have been on the floor 20, 28 years. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of cool to see that they have bad days too. And they stress out sometimes and like, you're not alone. And also like, I, I used to be a little like shy to ask because it's like, man, like you should know it. Like, what are they going to think? But honestly, like, Listen, if I have a question, I will message the provider itself, like the first call. I am like notorious for that. And honestly, I've had pretty good experiences because again, you are the eyes and ears and nobody's going to be upset with you for trying to provide safe care. So your charge nurses, your peers, like that is such a great resource for you. And there's no shame around that. Um, Yeah. So please, like you were saying too, Tina, like just ask questions. Don't ever just like, these are people's lives at the end of the day. And if somebody wants to talk behind your back, like okay, like you at the end of the day get to go home and it's your license. It's not anybody else's license and it's your patient's life. So um, I think that's what I've learned too during this past year. It's you have to kind of watch out for your your people, your patients, you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Ultimately, that's that's the most important thing. And if somebody does act, you know, inappropriately, or they act like they're mad at you for asking a question or act like you're stupid, it really is on them. It is not on you. That is them with the problem. You do not have the problem. Mm-hmm. You're doing the right thing. Every time you ask a question, that's one less question you're going to have to ask in the future because you you learn something. And I've found that if you ask doctors and nurse practitioners questions, a lot of times they they teach mm-hmm. you. They they'll teach you things and you're going to learn things, you know, about the decisions for why you would do this or you would not do that, you know. 
you know, you learn if a, a patient is appears overloaded, um, why wouldn't they give Lasix or, you know, you're thinking about the creatinine level or, um, and just, just all sorts of things. And that all that stuff comes with time. And we just have to give ourselves a break and remember, you know, ultimately that we're just human and we're, we're supposed to be working in an environment where, and, you know, just culture yeah. <laughs> where we're given forgiveness, you know, for, for making mistakes. I'm not sure that that's the case. I don't actually think that's the case anymore, but we still have to give each other a break. You de- definitely have to, to be careful. If you're working at the bedside, you're working in, you know, direct patient care, you're, mista- you're going to be accountable for your mistakes. Potentially, you could really be, you could pay a, a, a big price for those mistakes. So being diligent is um, definitely important for sure. Yeah, I agree. And remind everybody where they can find your podcast. Jennifer. So on Instagram, it's just raw tea podcast, um, no spaces, and then it should pop up. Awesome. And you guys don't forget to go to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com to become a patron to get your podcast episodes early and ad free. The video footage of us recording the episodes are also going to be on there. And you'll have access to our new Patreon exclusive podcast called Break Room Conversations. It's going to be so amazing and fun. So be sure and do that. And of course, before we go, I have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.